Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, we find opportunities in the second worst performing sector of 2020. Christine Benz shares tips for revisiting withdrawals as retirement goes on. Ben Johnson finds ETF picks in unpopular categories. And Christine Benz explains how to find the right amount of stock exposure in retirement. Let's get started. Here are three reasonably priced utility stocks for dividend seekers. Utilities closed out 2020 as the second worst performing sector behind energy and therefore entered 2021 with a much more attractive investment proposition from a valuation standpoint. In addition, the sector's 3.3 average dividend yield remains exceptionally attractive relative to ultra-low interest rates. Today, we're looking at three reasonably priced utility stocks that our analysts like. First Energy's shares fell 30% in July 2020 and have not yet recovered following the arrest of the Ohio House Speaker and four others on racketeering charges. Although no First Energy executives have been charged and First Energy no longer owns the entity that benefited from the alleged bribery, we expect it will have to repair regulatory and political relationships in Ohio, which represents less than 20% of earnings. First Energy's underlying businesses are solid. As the bribery headlines and COVID-19 issues fade, we estimate 4.8% annual earnings per share and dividend growth. Edison International offers a triple play of value, growth, and income. California political risk will always be a concern for Edison. However, California's progressive energy policies also create more growth opportunities than most other U.S. utilities. Edison's electric-only business, recent regulatory success, and $5 billion annual investment plan give us confidence that it can grow earnings 6% beyond 2020. Management recently raised the dividend 4%, and we expect that pace to pick up. Edison has stakeholder support to harden the grid against natural disasters, integrate renewable energy, and support electric vehicle adoption. Across much of American Electric Power's vast service territory, states were slower than others to adopt renewable energy standards. This has resulted in slower renewable energy growth for AEP thus far. But state regulators overseeing AEP's service territories are now embracing renewable energy development, providing significant growth opportunities beyond our five-year forecast. AEP will also benefit from investment opportunities in its transmission and distribution network, which is the largest in the U.S., as other utilities also connect renewable energy projects. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com slash Alexa. Now, Susan Jabinski and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. discuss retirement portfolio withdrawals in 2021. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. What adjustments should retirees consider making to their withdrawal rates in 2021? Here with me to discuss the topic is Christine Benz. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Susan. It's great to be here. Now, let's start with talking about why should retirees sort of revisit and perhaps recalibrate their withdrawal rates as their retirement goes on? Well, there are a few reasons. One is simply that we know from examining retirement spending patterns that spending in retirement isn't a flat line. People's spending tends to fluctuate based on what they have going on in their lives. So for a lot of retirees, a lot of all of us, 
Uh, 2020 was a year of very light spending. Going forward, they may spend more, they may spend less. So spending naturally fluctuates based on what you have going on in your life. And then you also want to think about your withdrawal rate with respect to your age. So as we age and are taking from our portfolios in, in retirement, we can generally take a higher withdrawal percentage as the years go by, as our life expectancy declines. And finally, you want to give some thought to your portfolio, its value, as well as valuations and the returns that you might expect from your portfolio going forward. So if your portfolio is enlarged, that means that you can take perhaps a higher dollar withdrawal. But if valuations have shrunk or have increased, that may also affect your withdrawal rate. So a lot of different considerations might affect how much you take out from year to year. So let's unpack those a little bit, maybe starting with uh, spending. How can a retiree, you say the first step is to sort of determine what you think your spending will look like in the coming year. How do you go about doing that? Well, really map it out. And you might use last year's spending as a baseline. But as I said, it was somewhat anomalous. Whether spending patterns in 2021 look the same is an open question, kind of depending on what happens with this virus. But use that as a starting point, because certainly your baseline expenses, your um property taxes, your utilities, your food outlays may not change a lot in 2021. So use that as a starting point and then think through any changes that you might expect to see in your spending. So think through what your travel plans are perhaps for later this year. Think through any extraordinary outlays that you expect to have, whether big home repairs or maybe you need a new car that you plan to purchase in 2021. So really map out those things and think about what your needs will be, what your wants will be, and how your spending might change. And then how do you take your age into consideration if you're reexamining your withdrawal rate? It's a really important question, Susan. And, you know, as I said earlier, you do want to think about taking potentially a higher percentage of your portfolio as you age. Our colleague, David Blanchett, who does retirement research for Morningstar Investment Management, has argued that the RMD system, the required minimum distribution system, is actually a decent starting point for people thinking about withdrawals in retirement because it does factor in age. So withdrawals scale up as people get older. Um, and so I think you maybe want to look at those RMD tables as kind of a baseline to determine how much you take out and to know that you can safely take more as you get further on into your retirement. And let's pivot over now to the part about the portfolio. So, you know, as, as you noted, despite 2020 being a very odd and interesting year, you know, stocks and bonds and most other asset classes did reasonably well last year. So retirees could be looking at a really nice return on their overall portfolios for the year. How should that impact or color how they think about withdrawals in 2021? Right. So there's good news and bad news here. The good news is that portfolios are generally enlarged because, as you said, Susan, almost no matter what you invested in in 2020, you had some good results. So we had a really strong performing stock market, obviously, but bonds actually did pretty well as well. And so investors who are retired have these enlarged balances 
On the flip side though, the return potential of both stocks and bonds are constrained in part because we did have such great results, not just in 2020, but 2019 as well. So you wanna factor that into how much you can take out as a percentage of your portfolio. Your portfolio balance is higher, that's a plus, but you probably wanna think about taking a lower percentage withdrawal going forward because returns are likely to be constrained from stocks and bonds over the next decade. And, you know, lastly, why is it especially important for newer retirees to be very careful with calculating what that withdrawal rate should be, especially, you know, after we've seen stocks go up so much the past couple of years and we're in still kind of an uncertain economic environment? Why is that so important? Right. It's really important for younger retirees to stay attuned to their withdrawals because there's this concern in retirement planning about what's called sequencing risk or sequence of return risk. And that basically means that if early in your retirement you encounter a really bad market, either for stocks or bonds or maybe both, and you're overspending from your portfolio during that time period, that leaves less of your portfolio in place to recover when the markets eventually do. So a lot of great research has been done on withdrawal rates over the past decade. Much of it comes back to if people can be somewhat flexible and take less during those periods of market duress, that really improves a portfolio sustainability over the totality of the retiree's time horizon. So for a 25 or 30 year time horizon, you can be really mindful and potentially reduce your withdrawals during those periods that can really improve a portfolio sustainability potential. So if you're a new retiree, I think you wanna be mindful of that research be prepared to take less if a weak market environment materializes early on in your retirement. For older retirees, this is less important. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today. A lot of great food for thought when it comes to withdrawal rates. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room, Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date, independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services shares two ETF picks with Susan Jabinski. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. U.S. large-cap growth stocks have largely been market darlings. Joining me today to discuss some ETF ideas that are maybe in some less popular categories is Ben Johnson. Ben's Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. Now, one certainly less popular area of the market uh, has been U.S. small value stocks. Can you talk a little bit about why they've been less popular and have been underperforming? Well, in in a word, it's it's performance. And in, in two words, it's been really lousy performance. I, I guess that's three words. But over the course of the past decade, what we've seen is that the Morningstar U.S. Large Growth Index has gained 17% annually. Over that same span, the Morningstar U.S. Small Value Index is up just 8% a year. And that spread's really only widened in recent years. So if we look back just over the past three years, the Large Growth Index is up 22% a year, while the Small Value Index 
has been up about 1% a year. Now, for a long stretch of time, that was perfectly justifiable. What we saw was that the fundamentals, the earnings growth in those larger, faster-growing stocks more than justified their multiples. Meanwhile, the earnings, the fundamentals of those small value names languished. That three-year figure that I referred to, the 22% annualized versus the 1% annualized, that spread, that wedge we've seen more recently, has been driven not by fundamentals, not really been justified, but almost exclusively by multiple expansion. We've seen the multiples of many of the market's darlings, names like Tesla, get up to absolutely stratospheric levels. And and that really has explained much of what we've seen in this spread between the large growth and the small value segments over recent years. So given that underperformance, Ben, how have investors responded? Many investors have cried uncle. So I summed up all of the flows in the Morningstar small value category across active and passive funds, ETFs, and mutual funds. And what we've seen is that those funds have been in outflows for the past four years running. In total, investors have pulled $9 billion in their hard-earned capital from those funds over the course of the past four years. So for investors who might want to play a rebound in small value, what what ETFs do you like in that corner of the market? Our favorite ETF in the small value Morningstar category is the Vanguard small cap value ETF. The ticker for that one is VBR. This is a no-frills approach to getting exposure to this segment of the market. It's a broadly diversified market cap weighted index fund that charges a rock bottom fee. Its annual expense ratio is just 0.07%. It's backed by a sound steward of capital in Vanguard, and it earns a Morningstar analyst rating of gold. Now, Ben, looking abroad, emerging markets haven't been embraced. Why is that? What's the story there? Well, in in the same three words I, I shared earlier, Susan, it really boils down to really lousy performance. So what we've seen is that over the course of the past 10 years, emerging markets on whole have lagged and, and lagged most significantly U.S. stocks and most notably U.S. large cap stocks. So over the course of the past decade, the annualized return of the S&P 500 index has been more than triple that of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. And what we've seen is that in recent days, uh, many investors have decided that they're not going to stick around to sit this out to try to see if things are going to improve. And what we saw in 2020 is that across all funds in the diversified Emerging Markets Morningstar category, They witnessed their first year of outflows since 2015. So uh, in this particular part of the market, emerging markets, what's what's a favorite ETF of ours there? What I would say is that while we have a generally dimmer view of broad-based market cap-weighted indexing in emerging markets, given that that method of constructing a portfolio tends to result in some notable concentration risks, most notably a fairly significant allocation to Chinese stocks, many of which are state-owned enterprises, which don't necessarily always operate with the best interests of shareholders in mind, it still doesn't do much to diminish the appeal of broad diversification, 
low turnover, and very low fees. So ticking all three of those boxes is one of our favorites in the category, which is the iShares Core MSCI Emerging Markets ETF. The ticker for that one is IEMG. Casts a very wide net, sweeping up most of the investable market capitalization within that opportunity set, charges a very low fee, is helmed by a great team that's very savvy when it comes to index portfolio management and should do well for investors over a very long period of time. Well, Ben, thank you for your time today and for sharing some of these highly rated ideas in these unloved categories. We appreciate it. Thanks again for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski. Thank you for tuning in. And lastly, Christine Benz and Susan Javinsky figure out how much equity exposure is right for retirees. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Given today's meager yields on fixed income and cash instruments, some retirees may be wondering if they should just go all in on stocks. Joining me today to talk about how retirees can think about right-sizing their equity allocations is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Susan. It's great to be here. So let's start out with the idea that you do think in general it's a good idea for retirees to have exposure to stocks. And, and why is that? Absolutely. So if I look at my model portfolios, even the conservative ones have like 40% in equities. And the key reason is that retirees absolutely need growth potential. Retirement for many of us will be a 25 or 30 year or even longer uh, time period. So you absolutely need to make sure that your portfolio grows, that it beats inflation. And the other reason that you want to have stocks in your portfolio is, as you said, Susan, yields are so low today. And that in turn means that the return potential on safer investments is also really quite low. So uh, yields are quite neatly correlated with future returns over the next decade. Right now, you know, you're really lucky to earn a return of like one and a half percent on a diver diversified bond portfolio. So most retirees can't afford to live with that very low return potential. They need the higher return potential that comes along with stocks and they need to make peace with having the volatility that comes along with stocks. Now, there is such a thing as overdoing it with stocks in retirement. You know, what are the risks of an all equity portfolio once you're retired? The big risk is that if you don't have any buffer assets in your portfolio, so if you don't have any cash or bonds in your portfolio, the risk is that you might encounter some big equity market drawdown. And certainly we have had several over the past couple of decades where stocks lose a lot. And your choices then will be to withdraw from that portfolio and if you do so, if you're withdrawing from your portfolio, from your equity portfolio as it's declining, that leaves less of the portfolio in place to recover when stocks eventually do. So it's suboptimal to go all in on stocks. You should ideally have some components of your portfolio that will hold their ground, may even gain a little bit of a value, a value in periods of stock market weakness. So how can retirees go about figuring out how much stock exposure is, is the right amount so that they're not derailing their longer term plans? 
I really like the idea of using their spending horizon, their near-term spending needs to drive how much they hold in safer investments, and then in turn back into how much to hold in stocks. So if a retiree is uh, actively drawing upon his or her portfolio, I like the idea of having eight to 10 years worth of anticipated portfolio withdrawals in cash in bonds. So in my model portfolios, I typically have two years set aside in cash investments, very low return potential there, but you are able to definitely preserve your purchasing power. Then with money that retirees might expect to spend in the next, say, five to eight years after that, there they can reasonably hold a high quality fixed income portfolio. And then the amount that's left over is an amount that they can safely have in, in, in stocks. And the reason I arrive at that 10 years worth of spending in safer investments is that we have had these periods where stocks have had kind of a lost decade, where they've gone down and stayed down for an extended period of time. The idea of having those more liquid assets set aside is that you could cover yourself, you could cover your spending needs through that period of market weakness. Now, many retirees, including many of our readers on Morningstar.com, um, are big fans of dividend-paying stocks, and they will use the dividends that these stocks pay to cover their income needs. So if a retiree has their income needs covered by the dividends on these stocks, how do you feel about them holding, say, an all-dividend stock portfolio? What's, what are the risks there? Well, I love the idea of retirees incorporating dividends into their portfolios. I think there is a risk of having an all-equity portfolio, even if it is composed of high-quality dividend payers. And the big one, which was one that we really saw in stark relief during the financial crisis of 2008, was that sometimes some of the biggest dividend payers are forced to slash their dividends in periods of market weakness and periods of broad economic weakness. So the risk for a retiree who's subsisting strictly on dividends, who doesn't have any buffer assets in the portfolio, is that those um, companies that they're relying upon do make dividend cuts and the retiree is forced to make due on less or um, you know, forced to resort to some other strategy that's suboptimal. So I think that even dedicated dividend payers probably want to have at least something set aside in safer assets to tide them through a situation like that. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today. I think there's been a lot of good information here about how, why we all do sort of need that buffer in retirement. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. 
Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.